Good evening. Welcome to the uh, first lecture of the public lecture series for the uh, spring semester of the current academic year. Uh, we're very pleased to have Kathleen Sullivan with us tonight. And to introduce her is uh, Stan Katz, professor at the uh, Woodrow Wilson School and uh, the director of the Law and Public um, Affairs Program. My name is Lee Silver. I'm going to turn it over to Stan Katz right now. Thank you, Lee. Uh, this is a very easy and brief assignment. Um, and it's a, we always say it's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure um, because it's a great coup for us to get Kathleen Sullivan to come here uh, tonight. Many of you will know of her work and possibly know her. She is one of the most distinguished constitutional lawyers in this country. Um, and she's someone who is well known to a lot of members of this uh, community. She is, uh, at the moment, the Stanley Morrison Professor of Law and the director of the Stanford Center for Constitutional Law, which he tells us this evening is in process of formation, so it may take us a little while to find out exactly what that is. But at least one of our undergraduates is going to study law at Stanford next year, and he's here and he's desperate to find out more about that. Uh, she was, she's been at, at Stanford uh, for uh, some time at this point. She was previously the Richard Lang Professor of Law, uh, and she was the dean of the Stanford Law School from 1999 until the end of the last academic year. She's now a free person, and she told us she's achieved several goals in achieving that free freedom. I will not tell you what the goals were. Uh, and uh, before that, she was a professor of law uh, and uh, an assistant professor. She sort of gained her spurs at the Harvard Law School, uh, where she was from uh, 1984, from, sorry, from, I got it right? Yeah, from 1984 uh, until 1993 when she moved to, to Stanford. Before that, she was a uh, federal court clerk for uh, Judge Oaks of the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. She was educated uh, uh, in initially at uh, Cornell. She's got one of those resumes that um, will turn the spine of any undergraduate to jelly. Um, she graduated from Cornell. Uh, as a college scholar, I never heard this phrase before, with this distinction in all subjects. <laughs> the mind boggles, but nevertheless, there it is. And then she was a Marshall Scholar, where she went to Oxford and did a first-class degree in PP&E. Um, and then she went to Harvard Law School, where she graduated with honors. Um, she never does anything wrong academically. She's been elected to the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and all of the wonderful institutions that we academics dream of uh, being uh, elected to. She's been elected uh, to all of them. She has been a prolific scholar. Um, most people, and some of the people in this room will know her because she uh, worked with Jerry Gunther, the, the, probably the, the leading constitutional scholar of my age in this country on his famous constitutional law casebook, which she now edits. And, and she's done with Jerry the First Amendment law book um, and an incredible series of articles over the years on almost any subject that you can name. And I'm going to mention only uh, two here. Uh, one, because 
Their articles have been important to me in particular. One is in uh, the Harvard Law Review in 1992, her foreword, which is the obligatory exercise for uh, emerging preeminent uh, academic lawyers, uh, the justices of rules and standards, and more important to me in 1989, her piece on unconstitutional conditions. This will be nothing to some of you, but when you listen to her tonight, I imagine that some of these uh, ideas will come through. But equally important, she's not only been an academic scholar uh, of the highest uh, distinction, but she's been a constitutional litigator. We were talking about that at dinner tonight, and I'm not going to go through a list of things, but she has represented important interests, actually, of rather different kinds of political and substantive concerns before the Supreme Court, including the McConnell FEC, key, FEC case, the Eldred case, the intellectual property case, um, and she was also involved in the uh, Bush versus Gore, the forerunner to the Bush versus Gore litigation. So she has been there both as an intellectual presence and as a um, lawyer, an active lawyer, a litigator, uh, in some of the most important constitutional issues of our time. She's a person who has been an inspiration to many of us uh, for the ways in which she has put the highest levels of scholarship to work in the practical interests of constitutional law, and it's a pleasure to introduce Kathleen Sullivan to you. Good evening, and thank you, Professor Katz, for that extravagant introduction. Very kind. I'm very honored to be invited here by Princeton to speak to you tonight. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and help you recover from last night's basketball game. And uh, uh, I happen to be in Philadelphia. They had a different attitude this morning. But um, my topic for tonight is the following set of problems. In the wake of a horrific terrorist incident that converts commercial airliners into bombs and takes over 3,000 American lives in two cities, what is to become of constitutional liberties? In the wake of the events of 9-11, should the government be permitted to detain and deport large numbers of men, principally Arab Muslims, in secret deportation proceedings? Should surveillance of possible links to terrorism take place under the secret and low-threshold procedures of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Court as opposed to the privacy protections imposed on law enforcement in traditional civilian courts? Should so-called enemy combatants be permitted to be detained indefinitely without charge, without access to counsel, and if and when tried, put before so-called military tribunals with ad hoc procedures that are not quite courts martial, not quite traditional court procedures, and in fact procedures that are presided over by people who don't even swear fidelity to the Constitution, as judges in civilian courts do. It's that set of problems and related problems that I want to consider with you tonight. And to do it, I'd like to set up the lecture this way. I'd like to describe to you two archetypes of how we might approach 
the Constitution in a time of emergency, the archetype of a continuous Constitution on the one hand, and the archetype of a, an emergency Constitution with provisions for its own temporary suspension on the other. We'll talk about those a little bit and where they fit into our tradition and the tradition of other countries in the world. And then I'll ask the question, where are we now on a spectrum between those two archetypes? So let's start first with the idea of a continuous constitution, a concept that suggests that, well, that's what constitutionalism is. It's a pre-commitment to behave in a continuous fashion even when short-term political will dictates departures from that approach. Use whatever pre-commitment metaphor you like, whether Ulysses tying himself to the mast so that he won't give in to the temptation of the siren's song, at, or more homegrown example, a diet. Uh, the idea that you try to say in advance, I'm not going to give in when I'm tempted in the short term because I've made a long-term commitment to transcendent principles. That's the apparent meaning of a written constitution that we understand, and it would seem to suggest that the constitution is, by definition, something that ought to be continuous throughout an emergency. It's meant to bind us when temptation is greatest, and associated with that is an institutional idea that the constitution is enforceable by courts, Courts are the most politically insulated branch and therefore the branch that will be the most able to resist the will of the people when they are most tempted by fear or even panic to forgo usual constitutional procedures and usual constitutional protection. So that's the obvious theory of the continuous constitution. Now, why would we think that that might be the one that we have? Well, because our Constitution, rather uniquely, and I'll get to the other countries in a short time, but rather uniquely among the constitutions of the industrialized nations of the world, our Constitution has no emergency provision. It has no provision for its own suspension in times of temporary or long-term emergency. And it's not because the founders didn't think about the problem. Because we know from a series of mini-emergency provisions, uh, this was a generation of people well aware of the danger of revolution, they just committed one, the danger of insurrection, the danger of danger from foreign enemies. Uh, so they were not without knowledge of the need, the potential need for emergency suspension. But all that they put into the Constitution were little, tiny, and closely cabined mini-emergency exceptions like Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15, the Congress shall have the power to provide for calling the militia to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, and repel invasions. And if that happens and the state national, today National Guards are called up, the President shall be their commander. Or Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, this is the part of the powers of Congress that adds on a bit about the restrictions on the powers of the states. It tells you what the states can't do. And one of the things it says the states cannot do no state shall, shall, without the consent of Congress, keep troops or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. So there might be a, a self-defense right on the part of the states, but it's cabined by the need for absolute uh, clear and present danger and, and, and temporary duration. In the rights provisions of the Constitution, again, no general provision for their suspension, just the famous... Uh, provision that allows for the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, that ancient English writ that essentially means hand over the body and is used to make sure that someone in executive detention, originally by the crown, today by the president, 
to make sure that somebody in executive detention has an opportunity to be brought before, in our system, a court and be told the reason for his imprisonment. Well, there's one provision in our uh, Constitution, the original Constitution, for the suspension of that privilege. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2 uh, says, The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended, shall not be suspended, unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. And there's a little interlude involving President Lincoln and the Civil War that we'll get to shortly about the invocation of that clause. In the Bill of Rights, we find very little on emergency suspension. Uh, The Fifth Amendment, for example, the amendment that has lots of things in it, but principally the Due Process Clause, it says that there's a requirement of grand jury indictment, but it is relaxed for the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Now, the inference, a negative inference from a list that doesn't have something. It's a little bit like Sherlock Holmes who detects uh, decodes a mystery because the dog didn't bark in the night. The didn't go out, dog didn't bark in the night. Yes, my dear Watson, that's exactly the point. It's, it's a frowned upon practice in a lot of constitutional law to make negative inferences from a list that doesn't include something else, but I'm going to do it anyway and suggest that the fact that the framers listed these many exceptions for certain kinds of very cabined and truncated emergencies suggests that they thought about but rejected the idea of a general emergency provision. So by negative implication, we don't have a general emergency exception in the Constitution. Now, we have a tradition in our practice of constitutional law that plays out this idea of pre-commitment to a continuous Constitution without an emergency exception. And let me read to you some of the soaring rhetoric that is associated with this continuous Constitution idea in our tradition. And let's start with President Lincoln's little interaction with Article 1, clause, uh, Section 9, Clause 2, the suspension of the habeas corpus writ. He, Lincoln uh, took the approach that he could suspend that writ unilaterally at the beginning of hostilities in the Civil War and did it for the first time in July of 1861, What it meant, essentially, is that he could imprison a lot of people, including Confederate soldiers who were blowing up bridges and train trestles over which Union troops were passing, but including a lot of other people, too, eventually, including political dissidents, the so-called copperheads in states like Ohio that were sympathetic to the Southern cause. And when he invoked the power to suspend unilaterally, he was chastised, first by a single justice of the Supreme Court, and then ultimately by the Supreme Court itself in a case called Ex Parte Milligan in 1866. By the way, note the date, 1866, the time that the Civil War was over. And one of the themes of the continuous Constitution idea may be that it's only invoked when it's safe to do so politically. But the Milligan opinion said the following off-quoted line. The Constitution of the U.S. is a law for rulers and people, equally in war and peace. And no doctrine involving more pernicious consequences was ever invented by the wit of man than that any of its provisions can be suspended during any of the great exigencies of government. And the actual holding in the case was that a military tribunal was an inappropriate venue for trial of someone who had been imprisoned without charge during the war and had his writ access to the writ of habeas corpus suspended, uh, because when the courts are open and we're not under martial law, the courts should be the recourse and the writ should not have been denied. So that's the, the notion of the continuous constitution for war and peace can't be suspended even during any of the great exigencies of government. Or think of a more modern example, the Korean War, 
when President Harry Truman, uh, dependent on labor for his election and in some bit of political unpopularity, decided that he didn't want to enjoin labor unions from striking and shutting down the steel mills across the country. Instead, he took the step of, by executive order, taking over the steel mills, taking down the corporate flag and running up the stars and stripes in effect, and taking command of them in order to prevent any work stoppage from impeding the flow of steel to munitions and armaments manufacture to supply the troops in Korea. What was his authority? Well, he invoked a kind of general authority. I'm the commander-in-chief. We need to make sure the troops have uh, tanks and guns and planes. And uh, so I have a kind of implied executive power to do this, even though Congress didn't pass any bill to authorize it specifically. And the Supreme Court struck this down, again uh, saying we have a continuous constitution, one for war and peace, more or less. The president can't seize steel mills during wartime, said the court in a set of different opinions with slightly different reasons, but united on the point that wartime alone was not a sufficient justification for the takeover of U.S. property. And the notion expressed in the majority opinions was that the president may be commander-in-chief of the military, but he is not commander-in-chief of the economy by implication. Now, apparently in one of the great social gaffes in the Washington calendar, President Truman was invited to Justice Black's house shortly after the opinion came down. Justice Black had written the main opinion telling Truman that he just violated the Constitution of the United States, which he was, Truman was very offended by. In fact, he was quite unrepentant about the steel seizure, wrote in his memoirs that he didn't regret it at all. But apparently Truman was there at Black's house with the other members of the Supreme Court who had just slapped his wrist. And the, the story is told that he uh, said at the end of the dinner, which only got off the ground because copious amounts of alcohol were served, at the end of the dinner he's reported to have said to Justice Black, Sir, your law is no good, but your bourbon is. And apparently a constitutional crisis was averted by the principal product of Kentucky. But the, um, uh, the principle here is, again, con- you know, the continuous constitution, no generalized emergency exception. Court is not going to read into the Constitution any kind of implied exception to the ordinary structure that Congress has to make the law and delegate it to the president. president can't make the law for himself, even in a time when there's an invoked emergency need. Now, again, it may be that the continuous Constitution is most easily invoked or enforced when it's politically palatable to do so. Truman's popularity ratings at the time the opinion came down were running around 22 percent. And so the court was not sticking its thumb in the eye of a popular president when it wrote this opinion. Or more recently, let me go back just a year, a year and a half ago to Justice O'Connor's opinion in the Hamdi decision. This is one of the three decisions about post-9-11 treatment of accused terrorists that we'll talk about at some length later. But Justice O'Connor, writing for the court in the Hamdi decision, this is the decision that said that a U.S. citizen imprisoned as an accused enemy combatant in a military brig in the United States, having been captured on the battlefield or allegedly on the battlefield in Afghanistan, can't be held indefinitely in the military brig without access to some kind of judicial due process. She wasn't very clear about what, but said there had to be some kind of access to judicial review, some kind of due process. And in, in, in making that ruling against the administration's litigation position, she wrote again of a continuous constitution. Here's Justice O'Connor. It is during our most challenging and uncertain moments that our nation's commitment to due process is most severely tested. 
and it is in those times that we must preserve our commitment at home to the principles for which we fight abroad. That was probably the most quoted line on the evening news that night about that opinion. So there you have it, the rhetoric of the continuous Constitution, a text in which the framers, uh, at least subconsciously and perhaps consciously, declined to go the route of having a general emergency provision and a series of judicial opinions that declined to read one in. Continuous Constitution. All right, that's archetype one. Now let's go over to the second archetype you might have, the sort of opposite archetype, the idea of an emergency constitution or a constitution with provisions for emergency moments, a constitution that either has an explicit provision for its own suspension under certain specified conditions and procedures, or that at least an an understanding that by judicial interpretation, we have to allow for a discontinuity, a moment when the Constitution is off, the toggle is off, and the Constitution doesn't apply. So either an explicit or an implicit tradition of a discontinuous Constitution with an emergency interruption. Now let's start again. Let's do theory and practice again. The theory here is a a, a theory of survival or self protection, self-defense, raison d'etat, to tie it back to liberal Western political theory. The the Constitution is not a suicide pact, as the Supreme Court once wrote. Governmental preservation must trump its foundational principles. Uh, you, You won't have a Constitution if you don't have a government in moments where the republic itself is at peril, of course the Constitution has to be suspended. That's the notion. It's often expressed in what is the apparently the misquoted maxim of Cicero, inter arma silent leges, when there are arms uh, at, at play, the laws are silent. Now, where do we have that in our tradition? We have the theory of the discontinuous tradition, sorry, the discontinuous Constitution in our tradition, spoken by some of our greatest political giants and heroes. Let's listen to President Lincoln in that 1861 July 3rd speech to the Congress where he was trying to get them to go along with his suspension of the writ. They didn't do it then. They did it later in the war three times. But when Lincoln first asked for permission and then did it anyway, suspended the writ of habeas corpus nationwide so that all those 13,000 folks who were imprisoned in Union military brigs couldn't get to court, um, when he gave that speech, he said the following famous often quoted line. He said, are all the laws but one to go unexecuted and the government itself go to pieces lest that one be violated, that one being the Constitution? This even became the title of Chief Justice Rehnquist's history of these different moments of constitutional emergency titled his book, All the Laws But One. Or consider the following uh, inside story about Franklin Delano Roosevelt's response later to the view that he had been wrong to authorize the military internment, the military quarantine of uh, 120,000 persons of Japanese descent in the western United States after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Now, this was upheld. Aspects of the related orders were upheld by the Supreme Court in the Korematsu decision in 1944, later repudiated by Congress. We'll talk about that in a minute. But said his one of his chief lawyers, Francis Biddle, about his internment, uh, I do not think the constitutional difficulty, the constitutional difficulty of rounding up people simply on the basis of race or national origin, a flagrant violation of principles of equal protection of the law held to be justified in this case by necessity, by emergency. 
said Biddle about FDR's feelings about this. I do not think the constitutional difficulty troubled him. The Constitution has not greatly bothered any wartime president. Or listen to this famous judicial example of an, uh, a justice who talked about an implicit need for a discontinuous or emergency Constitution. Justice Robert Jackson, a wonderful writer who combined a career as a Supreme Court justice and uh, attorney general with a later career as a prosecutor at the Nuremberg trials, a very interesting career, and he didn't even go to law school. He was he articled into the law in New York, but all of you pre-law students, I'd really suggest go to law school. Uh, it's a very good one on the West Coast for you. But the, um, and I don't have to, I can say that here because although you have a wonderful program in law and public affairs, you don't have a law school, so I'm not poaching. But said Jackson, Jackson dissenting in the Korematsu decision, that's the decision that upheld the curfew and internment of Japanese citizens and Japanese resident, alien residents in the, in the West Coast. Jackson dissented. And in a famous dissent, he was a wonderful writer. He said, well, look, I may understand the military necessity for this, but I'm not going to say it's constitutional. Unlike the majority, I'm not going to say that the necessity justifies this as a deviation from ordinary equal protection principles. Rather, he dissents, and he says that uh, it may, military expedience may be necessary but should not be legally ratified. For once, a judicial opinion rationalizes such an order to show that it conforms to the Constitution or rather rationalizes the Constitution to show that the Constitution sanctions such an order, the court for all time has validated the principle of racial discrimination in criminal procedure and of uh, of, of racial discrimination in criminal procedure and of transplanting American citizens. And then this is the famous line, the principle then lies about like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. So Jackson here is saying better to have a discontinuous constitution, admit we've gone into a temporary Hobbesian war of all against all, a kind of constitutional freefall, allow us to suspend the Constitution judicially, lest we proclaim we have a continuous Constitution, but water it down during the emergency in a way that will come back to haunt us when things get better again. Now, that's the, the theory. Those are the expressions of that theory in our tradition from Lincoln and by implication FDR and from Justice Jackson. Now let me tell you that most constitutions in the industrialized democracies of the world have explicit emergency provisions for their own suspension written into them. Uh, India, for example, I'll just give you a few examples. India, in a state of emergency, parliament may vest legislative power in the president, and the president may suspend judicial authority to enforce the constitution's fundamental rights, including equality, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of movement, freedom of religious practice. Some are reserved not free to suspend the right against compelled self-incrimination, not free to suspend the right against uh, due process entirely, but India has a complicated list of rights that can be suspended. South Africa, a constitution drafted with many contributions from American legal scholars with great attention to the American constitutional tradition, but very different, both in its many of its substantive guarantees and uh, many of its aspects, has an elaborate emergency provision. So elaborate an emergency provision that it says, Parliament may declare and extend a state of emergency. It provides for escalating supermajorities. The longer it lasts, the higher the vote count has to be, up from 60 to 75 percent. Uh, there, and there's a chart that says what rights may be derogated from, right? a, a chart that tells you which rights can be derogated from for how long with what kind of judicial review. 
uh, justification which rights are more derogable than others, but a, a complicated emergency provision. France, the French Constitution has an emergency provision invoked famously by de Gaulle once during the Algerian War, general suspension of many rights. Now, it's striking how different these provisions of other constitutions are from our own. Contrast that with the little tiny mini exceptions I read to you from our constitution. Our constitution strikingly does not have a general emergency provision like these. Now, you might say there's there's no surprise in that. Uh, why should constitutions coming out of different cultures be similar? In fact, our constitution is very different, both in its text and its interpretation, from the constitutions of other lands. And, you, and you, Professor Shepley, who's here tonight, is an expert in comparative constitutionalism. Professor Katz is an expert in comparative constitutionalism. Why should we expect our constitution to be similar? We're very different. You learn this if you go to international judges' conferences, especially the French constitution. You know, uh, you learn at judges' conferences that we have an extravagant view of freedom of speech in this country. People from Germany or France can't understand why we have such extravagant free speech rights that courts would protect the right of neo-Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois, a town inhabited principally by Holocaust survivors, a kind of thumb in their eye, an offense to their psychic peace. And yet we have a First Amendment right that says even the symbolic expression of a hateful message, a genocidal message, is protected uh, by freedoms of speech. And I was once at a conference that uh, involved a number of constitutional judges from around the world, and we were the judges from other social democratic countries in Europe were questioning why do Americans have such an extravagant constitutional protection for freedom of speech and other civil liberties and such weak protection for social and economic rights like the right to housing or the right to education. Why is it thus? And there was a moment when one of the French judges became most impassioned about the Skokie case and he rose in a, in a voice from central casting and a mellifluous accent, and he began saying in front of the American and British and Australian ju justices of the high courts, we in France cannot understand how you Americans could let the Nazis march through your streets. And the Americans and the British and the Australians turned to them and thought, yeah, we, we wish the French had thought of that sooner. And so I, I, I don't mean to... I don't mean to suggest here that there's any reason we should expect in advance that our constitutions would be necessarily similar. We have different traditions. But gee whiz, it's striking that almost all constitutions other than our own in nations that are otherwise somewhat similar in their political and democratic structures have these emergency provisions. And, not surprisingly, there are a number of constitutional scholars in our country who, in the wake of 9-11, have said this is an obvious defect in our Constitution, just as we should learn other things from the Europeans. We should take heed of their emergency provisions, and we should provide, if not a constitutional amendment, because Madison made those very hard to enact, uh, if not through a constitutional amendment, at least through a quasi-constitutional statute, we should have a kind of emergency provision that provides for... Uh, uh, f f that's Madison calling to tell us what he thinks, right? <laughs> that the, um, we, we, each, we should have an emergency provision at least through a statute. Uh, there are various scholars, Bruce Ackerman of Yale has proposed such a thing, that their escalating supermajorities like in the South African Constitution would be a good thing. He would put in strong compensation rights if we get it wrong. So if we round up a lot of people and we r realize later that we were overreacting through uh, ex ante mistake in our calculus, we just give them money ex post. So there are these proposals. Uh, I'm going to suggest that I, I don't think that's a good way to go, but we'll get there in a minute. Now, I've given you the, the uh, 
uh, notion, the theory of a discontinuous constitution, analogs from other nations. Now let me admit that notwithstanding all that beautiful language I just read you from the Milligan opinion and steel seizure case and Justice O'Connor and Hamdi, we have an obvious counter-tradition in our country of an emergency constitution in practice or a discontinuous constitution in practice. We don't do it through an explicit or formal suspension of the Constitution. We do it through deferential judicial interpretation of the Constitution that lets the executive get away with it for this time, Korematsu being an example. Not the only example. Let's go back to Lincoln. So again, Lincoln suspends the writ of habeas corpus. He and his uh, Union generals lock up 13,000 civilians and Union army brigs over the course of the war. The common themes, there are many different things they're rounded up for, you know, everything from blowing up bridges with Union soldiers on them to bootlegging among the troops, and especially, and most controversially, saying bad things about Lincoln. So one of the uh, cases that eventually after the war is litigated to the Supreme Court involved a copperhead from uh, Illinois who was convicted by a military tribunal for the ad hoc charge of declaring disloyal sentiments and opinions not a charge that existed in a prior statute. Uh, one of the things he had done is gone around giving a speech that he wanted people to join him in hurling King Lincoln from his throne. Now, this is an extreme example of where you might think that this person was more likely, like a dissident than a traitor. But uh, there were other cases as well in which the people locked up in Union Briggs, this is controversial historically what the ratios were, but at least some of the people locked up in Union Briggs were political dissenters rather than uh, Confederate um, spies. In the rebuke by the Supreme Court in the Milligan decision in 1866, the court holds that was wrong. It's improper to try in a military tribunal for civilian offenses off the battleground, a person like Milligan. Martial law says the court can never exist where the courts are open and in the proper and unobstructed exercise of their jurisdiction. The courts remained open during the Civil War. They were more dangerous places, but they weren't closed down. But there's the counter-tradition, and Lincoln got away with that throughout the war until 1866. Or fast forward to 1918, World War I, another famous set of examples where a series of statutes, Congress gets into the act now, uh, amending the Espionage and Sedition Acts to prohibit speech, not only actual counsel to insurrection, but speech that helped obstruct recruiting or enlistment or speech tending to incite, provoke, and encourage resistance to the U.S. war effort. This led to the prosecution of a lot of left-wing speech. Uh, it helped to produce the lobbying organization now known as the American Civil Liberties Union. But the court upheld against First Amendment challenge the application of these new acts to many dissenting cartoons, pamphlets, leaflets that uh, opposed the war in ways we would now think obviously protected by freedom of speech. And indeed, ultimately, by 1969, the Supreme Court formally overrules those opinions, says, no, that got it wrong. Speech can only be punished when it's really a literal incitement to riot. It's the person saying on the barricades, storm the Capitol, not the people who simply write that capitalism must be destroyed. So, again, the courts deferentially bow, this time under the First Amendment, to an executive and legislative practice of using emergency as a ground to really suppress what we might think of as uh, protected liberties. FDR's internment of the Japanese, we've already discussed. The forced relocation, internment, property deprivation of 120,000 West Coast persons of Japanese descent. It's often forgotten that 70,000 of them were citizens, many with families fighting in the armed forces. Uh, this is upheld against race discrimination challenge in the Korematsu and related decisions in 1944. Again, there's 
ex post regret, a kind of morning after regret. The morning in this case took a long time. Congress writes a reparations bill and an apology resolution in 1988, at which time Fred Korematsu, who's still alive and living in Oakland, and many other people of his generation who were subject to the internment are pretty aged and a lot are gone. But that's a set of examples where you have to admit that in practice we have had a discontinuous constitution brought about by executive and legislative responses to emergency, but then blessed by a court that reads the First Amendment or reads uh, the uh, uh, equal protection clause in a way that allows that executive and legislative discretion, in effect, to turn off the Constitution for a time. And unlike Jackson, the other justices in Korematsu, in the majority, said that this was within our constitutional tradition. So you might say they bent the Constitution to an emergency rather than admitting that they'd cut a hole in it. There's probably a topological analog for this in mathematics, but you see the point. All right, I've given you the two archetypes, continuous constitution, pre-commitment, one for war and peace, discontinuous constitution, better to be candid so that we don't dilute the constitution for ordinary times. Let's admit candidly that we're turning it off in emergency times, Jackson's approach, rather than the approach of these other decisions that in effect defer to an emergency constitution as we did in World War I, as we did in the internment of the Japanese, as Lincoln did, and we can multiply the examples. So now I turn to where are we now? Let's come back to 9-11, where we began and its aftermath. Well, there's no doubt that there's been a learning curve, that our morning after regret, our tendency to say, as Congress did in the apology resolution and the reparations bill about the internment of Japanese, to say we made a mistake, we panicked, we were neurotic, we overreacted, as Justice Holmes once said about those pamphleteers who were jailed for long periods of time, including, including the socialist presidential candidate Eugene Debs, uh, as Justice Holmes once said in dissenting from one of those decisions, allowing those dissidents in World War I to be locked up, he said, why are we afraid of what he called these poor and puny anonymities? All right. So we often look back and we say, well, you know, interning 120,000 Japanese persons of Japanese descent, because General DeWitt, when challenged in the Pacific Theater, saying, General DeWitt, what is the evidence that there are traitors and spies among the peaceful Japanese farmers of California? Nothing has happened. And General DeWitt said to Congress, yes, that's exactly it. Nothing has happened. That's why we must round them up. We look back and we said, as Judge Patel said in a quorum nobis ruling in San Francisco shortly after the uh, congressional act, she said, there was not sufficient evidence for Congress to bless the military decision to have the Japanese internment. So we have this kind of constitutional culture of regret for the episodes of practical de facto constitutional emergency provisions, emergency suspension in our past. And as a result, I think it's absolutely fair to say that we have not repeated those episodes, at least not literally, in the wake of 9-11. We have subscribed to the official rhetoric of the continuous Constitution. President Bush was eloquent in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 on how we mustn't allow violence to break out against persons of Muslim persons of Arab descent. We will never go back to an internment on the scale of that applied in the West Coast to Japanese persons of Japanese descent. We haven't seen the absolute tear in the fabric, the wrench, uh, in, the, in the constitutional fabric we've seen in earlier eras. 
we've seen public response to some of the more extravagant post-9-11 propositions like uh, uh, provisions that have Admiral Poindexter's leadership of the Total Information Awareness Project that came out of defense research but raised a popular outcry that all of your personal data was going to be combined and sniffed through uh, by massive government databases to generate terrorist profiles to see who might be suspicious and share that with intelligence agencies. That project, TIA, has been uh, was defunded in part by Congress and subject to blue ribbon oversight. People react against uh, at least some aspects of what seem like extravagant departures from constitutional liberties just because of the events of 9-11, and we're not repeating those exact practices. But I'd like to suggest to you that dangerously and troublingly, we are engaged in a series of responses that suggest we're somewhere in the middle between a continuous and a discontinuous constitution and maybe leading somewhat less visibly toward a discontinuous or emergency constitution in ways that should trouble us. Let me give you three, uh, cite you three things that I think are troubling, three trends or aspects that are troubling. Secret proceedings, uh, moving people into the category of discretion rather than law, and vague attempts at judicial constraint on executive discretion. Let me just give you some examples now from our recent history. So let's start first with the secret proceedings problem. Right, the, in the aftermath of 9-11, a number of innovations in criminal law enforcement were used to, under, to do a massive investigation and roundup of what turned out to be over 1,300 people, almost all or principally, of many nationalities, but principally Muslim men of Arab descent. And the, what was used was a, a kind of indefinite detention practice on the theory that these might be material witnesses in terrorist events. Not, these were not people charged with terrorist activity. They were held on, on material witness warrants. They were held without charge and without access to counsel. And then ultimately most of them deported, deported for immigration violations unrelated to terrorism in most cases, people who'd let their driver's license expired or had passed a bad check. These are legitimate grounds for deportation, but the reason for singling out this set of people was suspicion of relation to terrorist activity that was largely unproved. But what I want to focus on here is the aspect of secrecy. There was a, a controversial interpretation of our immigration and naturalization laws to say that these hearings, unlike hearings that we have in criminal proceedings, would be held in secret, no access to press. And, of course, the newspapers and major media agencies who get more worked up about the First Amendment than any other part of the Constitution brought lawsuits about this, and this led to a circuit split. One set of federal courts said this was a violation of the First Amendment and related aspects of the right to public trial. Another circuit court said, no, it was okay. It never got resolved by the Supreme Court, which didn't take these two cases up, and it was mooted out by the ultimate deportation of a lot of these uh, people. But it's the secrecy I want to focus on, it, the taking an ambiguous category of persons committing immigration violations. Aliens don't enjoy all the same constitutional rights as citizens. They're more protected by some constitutional provisions than others. And aliens, even if legally here, are understood to be in the United States inside the border on a, as a matter of privilege rather than right. And so the deportations were not illegitimate, but the motivation for the selection of this 1,300 people, this set of 1,300 people, from all the aliens who might have passed a bad check or made a wrong left turn, uh, that was the problem. And, and, and the secrecy prevented any kind of public scrutiny of the scope 
of government uh, activity in violation of the usual norm that you should so as be rounded up because of individualized suspicion and what you did and not because of your national or religious identity and who you are. So the secret proceedings, which has been un uh, challenged or uh, unresolved. The secrecy of those proceedings has never been resolved as to whether it's constitutional or not by the Supreme Court. That's f- first trend, trend number one. Trend number two, and this is going to be a little bit more complicated to explain. Uh, the second trend is to try to take ambiguous categories and push them toward the discretion end of the Constitution as opposed to the law. Now, what do I mean by that? The Constitution has a lot of vague and open-ended provisions in it, and sometimes we interpret those to be more like uh, fixed rules, and sometimes we interpret them to be more like vague standards. If you think of the difference between a, a speed limit that says you may go no more than 65 miles per hour, it may be unfair because you can get stopped for driving 70 on a sunny day, and you can be allowed to drive 60 on a rainy day, even though 70 on a sunny day might be safe, 60 on a rainy day might be unsafe, but it's, at least it's a rule, it's clear, it's ascertainable. Or you can say drive safely for the weather conditions, which might be applied more fairly in different cases, but it also might be dis- applied unfairly if the police go after you for because they don't like you because they favor Penn over Princeton in the basketball game. There could be bad reasons for stopping you. So we have a range of places in which we're more law-like and we're more discretion-like, more standard-like in our rules. And there's this pattern, this nervous pattern of trying to push aspects of the response to 9-11 into the discretionary category as opposed to the legal category. Let me give you two examples, one from procedure, one from privacy. Procedure, enemy combatants. Who are enemy combatants? Well, they're not exactly enemies uh, in the sense of prisoners of war operating as agents of a foreign government under the law of war and treated subject to the law and convention of war, nor are they exactly criminals subject to ordinary law enforcement protections, protections against arbitrary law enforcement in the Constitution. So we have a world of law. The Constitution says there's a whole set of procedural protections. They're associated with, for example, the protections in the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, the right to due process, the right to clear notice of the charges against you, the burden on the government to come forward with evidence against you, prohibitions on coercion to extract confessions, right to counsel, the right to confront witnesses against you, the right to public trials, the presumption of judicial review. That's the law end that applies to criminal law enforcement. But when we think of things that are military as opposed to civilian, there's no question that we allow lots more latitude, a lot more discretion. You can have courts martial on a battlefield that are truncated, that don't have the kind of process with lawyers and judges that you have in a civilian court or a, a, a non-war court. On the one hand, you have federal prisons and federal courts. On the other hand, you have Guantanamo or a battlefield. Now, the administration's truly extravagant litigating position about enemy combatants that went before the Supreme Court was to say that enemy combatants, these people who are neither fish nor fowl, neither criminals nor enemies, but something in between terrorists who are associated with a substate network of loosely affiliated agents of terror against the United States, but not soldiers in a foreign army. As to these, said the administration, they may be detained either in Guantanamo, a peculiar American territory on Cuba as a legacy of the Spanish-American War, but no doubt governed by America under America's sovereignty, 
enemy combatants, whether they're aliens imprisoned in Guantanamo or even citizens imprisoned in U.S. military brigs, said the administration, are not covered by any of those legal protections. They're subject to a discretionary realm in which they can be prosecuted not even under the laws of war or the Geneva Conventions, but before military tribunals in which there is no oath to uphold the Constitution, no separation between the prosecutor and the judge, military judges without the usual protection against conflict, no judicial review in civilian courts, no right to counsel. Now, this litigating position, you see the idea. The administration here is saying, well, uh, if if we don't have to subject this group to law, we can subject it to discretion, we can essentially make up the procedures as we go along, issuing new rules for these peculiar military tribunals. We can also make up the substantive charges as we go along. And there was, uh, it was not a, a, a lawless position. It was rooted in some precedents surrounding World War II. But it goes up to the Supreme Court, and what happens there is that the, we'll get to in a minute. Let me just say that that's the administration's position. If we can't classify it as a a, a criminal, if there's an enemy combatant at stake, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment are off. We'll push this to the realm of discretion. Same kind of pattern with respect to the right to privacy. We don't actually have the word privacy anywhere in the Constitution, but the Fourth Amendment, which provides that there shall be no unreasonable searches and seizures and that uh, no warrants shall issue except upon probable cause, which has been understood to mean that typically law enforcement can come in and rummage through your drawers or your floppy disks or your uh, diaries or your phone calls without individualized, particularized reason to think you have done something wrong or about to do something wrong. That requirement of individualized suspicion that governs our law world of law enforcement in the criminal realm doesn't apply over in the discretion realm, the sphere of spies. Criminals get one set of protection. Spies, we have a much more discretionary regime for. And we've thought it's all right when it applies to spies. We have a foreign intelligence surveillance court, which was founded in the 70s. It meets in a secret chamber at the top of the Justice Department. It hears ex parte warrants from warrant applications from the Department of Justice. It's composed of federal judges, but it meets in secret. And the key thing about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court is it can issue warrants backed by less than probable cause anytime there's reason to suppose that somebody's spying on us. Well, you see the reasoning. The reasoning is if somebody's spying on us by a foreign nation, you don't exactly want to go through all these procedures that might tip them off. Uh, so it, there's a secrecy surrounding it. But in the wake of 9-11, what Congress and the President did, again, is take an ambiguous category, terrorism, and try to push it toward the foreign surveillance apparatus, the discretionary end of the Constitution, and away from the law end, away from the criminal law enforcement end. The USA Patriot Act, passed in a great rush in in November of 2001, provides for a couple of important changes of procedure. These foreign intelligence warrants can now be gotten not when the reason is you think somebody's a spy, but because a purpose of the warrant might be some loose connection to foreign intelligence. What this means is that ter- and terrorists are defined as foreign, and so the, the result of this is that you can go to a secret court to get secret warrants to go after a much larger range of people who might be ordinary criminals. And it actually hasn't turned up that many uh, uh, terrorists, apparently, but it's been really bad for the mafia. Right? It's actually led to a lot more warrants against organized criminals in the United States. There's lots of other things in the USA Patriot Act that, again, 
in response to terrorism say, let's handle this through a more discretionary, loose apparatus with lots more executive discretion and judicial deference instead of all those strong judicial checks on executive discretion that we have over in the criminal law regime. Sneak and peek warrants, uh, roving wiretaps, wiretaps that are set not on your phone based on the place it's registered, but on your cell phone or your personal digital assistant as well. I know to young people this is shocking that anyone would have limited a warrant to a landline. I mean, who limits themselves to a landline? Why should the United States government? So that, that part wasn't surprising. But sneak and peek warrants, warrants that allow an investigation of which the target is never made aware, unlike the typical rules of law enforcement. Ex parte searches of third-party records so government can go into your video store your library and get records of your book use, because your book use might be a trail to your foreign intelligence activity, a.k.a. terrorism. There are a lot of innovations in the USA Patriot Act that use terrorism as an excuse to expand the realm of the foreign intelligence world and nip away at what used to be the law enforcement world and relax law into discretion. So those are the examples of what the administration and the Congress have done that I think is the troubling uh, thing. It's not like a discontinuous Constitution. It's not saying the Constitution is turned off like a toggle. It's saying the Constitution has these, it's, is a spectrum. There's a law end. There's a discretion end. Anything we can push over to the discretion end, let's do. Let's put enemy combatants into uh, indefinite charges, indefinite detention without charges in Guantanamo. Let's use the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to go after ordinary criminals. Now, That's the second troubling trend. What have the courts done about it? Well, I think that's the third troubling trend. After secret proceedings, an expansion of the realm of discretion in relation to law. The third trend is that to the extent there have been judicial responses saying any of this raises constitutional concern, the judges have responded with broad, vague standards that carefully avoid putting too much of a thumb in the eye of the president rather than through clear law-like, rule-like constraints or uh, clear uh, remands so that the Congress has to approve what the executive is doing. So let me just now tell you what happened in some of these challenges to post-9-11 post detentions. Let's take Mr. Hamdi. This is the man born long ago in Louisiana but raised in Saudi Arabia who was found apparently, according to the, his captors, fighting for the Afghani side in Afghanistan. He says he was just, you know, on a, on a, on a trip, uh, wasn't involved, in, but he never got a chance to actually play that out in front of a court because he was incarcerated indefinitely in United States military uh, detention facilities. The Supreme Court finally takes up his case about three years after the, the capture, two, two and a half years after the capture, and it has two different rulings. The first thing it had to rule on is, did the executive have any grounds for rounding up and detaining such alleged enemy combatants in the first place? Where is the law that authorized it? Now, let's think back to Harry Truman for a minute. The problem he had with the steel mills is the court said there wasn't any law that authorized him to seize the steel mills. Congress has to make the law. The president just gets to execute it without there being a law that authorized him to seize the steel mills, he can seize the steel mills. Well, Mr. Hamdi said a version of the same thing. His lawyer said a version of the same thing. Where is the law that said you can round up enemy combatants and put them in military brigs? They're not enemies covered by the court's martial law. They're not criminals covered by the law of treason. Where's the law? And the court looked around and it said, well, we think that the authorization here is sufficient from the joint resolution 
for the use of military force, the joint, author, uh, joint authorization for the use of military force. And that was the joint resolution Congress passed that said essentially the President is authorized to go after any of the people who perpetrated the bombings of 9-11 or nations that harbor them. That was part of the authority to go into war in Afghanistan, Afghanistan having been a place that harbored al-Qaeda. That was within the literal meaning of the law. But the challenge in Hamdi was when Congress authorized military intervention in Afghanistan, did it also in authorize the uh, unusual treatment of people captured in Afghanistan after they're brought home to U.S. soil? And his claim was, no, it didn't. There was no express delegation, and the court said, no, we're going to read this broadly enough to authorize executive detention. Five to four is that piece of the decision. There's a second part of the decision that goes in Mr. Hamdi's favor, and that's the one that I already read to you from, where Justice O'Connor, writing the determinative opinion, says, well, Mr. Hamdi needs some due process. He doesn't need full due process, but he needs some due process. He's very vague about what it might be. Some notice of the charges against him, some opportunity to rebut those facts before a neutral decision maker. But she doesn't say whether military tribunals will be good enough. She doesn't say whether enemy combatants deserve a right to a lawyer. She leaves that all ambiguous. Now, there were two justices in that Hamdi decision who were radical civil libertarians. One was Justice Stevens, and the other, of course, was Justice Scalia, that well-known radical civil libertarian. Justice Scalia wrote an opinion saying, look, Hamdi can be tried for treason. There are provisions in the Constitution providing special requirements for treason trials. You have to have two witnesses against you and so forth. Or he can be a U.S. citizen who's captured on an enemy battlefield. That's usually what we say. We say there's a treason problem here. Or Congress can suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Congress can vote to say, hello, it's Lincoln time again. It's time to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. And those are the, that's what's in the Constitution, folks. There's treason charges or the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus. But you can't have a guy who's locked up as an enemy combatant indefinitely in a place that he, you know, where he doesn't have access to his family, doesn't have access to a lawyer, and let him go before a military tribunal. It violates Milligan, after all. Uh, when the civilian courts are open and in the proper exercise of their jurisdiction, we don't have that sort of thing. So I wondered whether he really was trying to press Congress to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, and that was the real goal of the decision. But you see the point. There's law world, steel seizure, president has to have a delegation from Congress, delegation should be read narrowly rather than broadly, and a, something that authorizes you to invade Afghanistan no more entitles the president to create military tribunals and enemy combatant procedures than the war in Korea undeclared authorized Truman to be the commander-in-chief of the economy. There's law world, right? Hamdi isn't tried for treason. There's no suspension of the writ. He gets a writ of habeas corpus, and he gets immediate access to judicial review. Or there's discretion world. And Justice O'Connor, who I think was rightly praised by many for writing a decision that reasserted the point of judicial review. She's rightly praised for asserting rule of law values against pure executive discretion. She says Hamdi needs some due process. But she writes it so broadly and vaguely that it goes back to the lower courts without clear legal guidance. So unlike steel seizure, there's no separation of powers ruling. Unlike uh, tight legal rulings, there's confusion in the aftermath, and there's now a split within the District of Columbia courts. District of Columbia is one district, uh, but it has many judges. And two of the judges on the district have now disagreed about what kind of due process Hamdi means they have to give, with one judge saying it basically means, yes, 
the writ of habeas corpus means he gets to come before me, but he's not going to be before me very long because I don't think there's any substantive rights that I have to give him. And another judge just came down last week. So Judge Leon said he gets a formal right to habeas but no substantive review. Judge Green on the same district just said last week, no, there, I'm, I think that what Hamdi means, what due process means for an enemy combatant is he has to get a lawyer, right? This is full employment for lawyers. He has to get a lawyer, and he has to get notice of the charges against him and a fair opportunity to rebut, meaning that she gets in her court to look at what the executive says is his terrorist connection. This isn't Hamdi's case. He's long gone, but this is the case of another detainee at Guantanamo. She's, she's trying to, so Judge Green says, I get to look at what the military says are the grounds for detaining him. And if the military is worried that's going to imperil the secrecy of its military efforts or national security efforts, I will read that in my chambers in secret and I will redact it from the opinion. So this is a remarkable thing. If you go on the internet and you see her opinion, large sections are blacked out where the government evidence takes place, but she's read it and she's using it as a basis to decide whether or not these folks are terrorists or people who got caught up on a very erroneous vacation. So the, uh, t the, the point of this exercise is a long detour through what I think is the threat and what I think is the, the, the problem. When we push over ambiguous categories like enemy combatants or terrorist organizations in the USA Patriot Act out of the realm of law into the realm of discretion, either through assertions of executive power to treat criminals as uh, uh, enemies or criminals as spies, or when we see judges issuing very broad, vague constraints on the executive that still leave a lot of executive discretion, there's a danger. It's not the danger of a candidly discontinuous constitution in which we know that bets are off. It's the danger of an insidiously, quietly, incrementally discontinuous constitution, the erosion through small steps, a thousand cuts, rather than wholesale departures. And it may be politically more dangerous because it's hard to get worked up out of obscure provisions about obscure provisions in the USA Patriot Act that might be being exercised by secret court whose work we don't know about or secret deportation proceedings. The invisibility of the procedures make it hard to make political opposition uh, develop. They're less visible and therefore less incendiary. This is especially troubling because there are two aspects of the present context that are disturbing. One is the vagueness of the notion of terrorism. It has no definition in time or space. Substate actors loosely affiliated by ideology and religion across many nations operating out of uniform and in clandestine ways. Very tough to get a handle on. No defined battlefield, so no VT day at the end of this war, no finitude in time or space. So hard to think of an emergency, an emergency notion that can actually come to an end, can actually sunset in any clear way. And the second aspect of the current context that makes this insidious erosion troubling is the international relations aspect, that in a highly globalized world in which communication is much more instantaneous and international relations are important, there's a problem with departing from our Constitution. It creates vulnerability to other nations who will balk at extraditing people to us if they think we've derogated from our own human rights. Judge Robertson, a very moderate judge in the District of DC, uh, uh, the D District Court for the District of Columbia, wrote a decision recently saying that some of the Guantanamo enemy combatants were having their Geneva Convention rights violated not the Constitution, but he said, look, if we have guys like Hamdan, his case, captured in Afghanistan and held 
in Guantanamo and subject to one of these new military tribunals, which he said didn't meet what the Geneva Convention requires for POWs, Robertson says this can only weaken the United States' own ability to demand application of the Geneva Conventions to Americans captured during armed conflicts abroad. And other governments have already begun to cite the United States' Guantanamo policy to justify their own repressive policies. Right? So the, the implicit derogation from our own Constitution becomes a vulnerability vis-a-vis allied states and vis-a-vis American rights elsewhere. The third aspect of the current context, terrorism is inf- indefinite. We've got international ally problems if we seem to not be the shining city on the hill. Third problem is we've got an incredible political mandate now with the three branches of government united in one party with a tremendous mandate, assuming Bush gets a number of Supreme Court appointments. Tremendous lineup without the usual political friction and gridlock that might impede efforts to discontinue the Constitution. In that setting, we ought to be worried. We ought to be worried. So what are my suggestions? Well, as you can tell, uh, I would hope that courts would, as the court did in Steel Seizure and as justices like Scalia and Souter would have done in Hamdi, the first thing I wish that is that there would be a stronger judicial policing of whether a congressional delegation has really given the executive authority for some of these constitutional innovations. It doesn't mean that the courts have to take over writing the law. It just means that the courts ought to be forcing more dialogue between the executive and the legislative branch and forcing Congress to do more to be specific in its authorizations. This should not all be written by smart lawyers in the Justice Department, right? There should be Congress, the representatives of the people, deciding what we do with enemy combatants, for example. I think, second, there ought to be stronger and more rule-like decisions by courts when they do interpret individual rights to limit the executive. They should do more to police the structure of the Constitution in a clear way that forces Congress to act, and they should do more to make the decisions like Hamdi rule-like rather than vague so that military tribunals don't suffice unless they have procedural protections like access to counsel, at least for people caught off the battlefield and on American soil outside of the zone of danger. But third and last, it's that is the point that we all have to care about it, that the degree of sort of complacency and silence that has surrounded public debate since 9-11, I think, comes from a false sense of security that this isn't Korematsu, this isn't World War I or the Red Scare. We haven't seen the kind of highly visible, highly uh, uh, pronounced discontinuities in the Constitution that we've seen in the past, so all must be well. But all may not be well when we have these insidious ways of interrupting our Constitution through the rule of discretion over law, through secret proceedings, and through deferential and timid judicial interventions. Of course, judges have to beware sticking too much of a thumb in the eye of the president. And all the examples of that great rhetoric I read to you were when presidents were not as politically powerful as ours ours is today. So the last thing I would say is we need a little bit more public dialogue about this, more public vigilance, Uh, not to be like the frog in the water, the proverbial frog in the water, who if he's dumped in a boiling pot of water, he realizes he's just become a French meal. But if he's put in a cold bat of water and the temperature is raised incrementally, he doesn't realize he's been cooked. So we need to not be the frog. We need to be tigers on this issue. And thank you for inviting me to Princeton to talk about it. Well, we are mostly tigers here, although um, 
the reference to the basketball team is really very unwelcome, but we'll just have to, we'll have to live with that. It was a terrific lecture, and we've gone a little long, but I'm very eager that we have, no, that we have at least a few questions, and Dean Sullivan is willing to take a few questions. I'll turn it back to you, I think. You want to you, say, who, say who you are, introduce uh, yourself? Sorry, my name is Andrew Brock. I'm a senior, uh, and I'm writing my thesis on the Hamdi and Aloda decisions. Um, you said that it would be preferable if Congress were to intervene and to pass some legislation dictating what would be the, the best way to deal with um, the enemy combatants. But given the fact that Congress is controlled by, you know, much of the same people who are by the same party who passed, you know, who controlled the executive, it's conceivable that they would, you know, pass very similar legislation to what the executive originally supported. Do you think that that would be better if the exact same policies were in place or the same sort of limited due process protections for suspected terrorists uh, if it came out of Congress instead? Yeah. Excellent question. Uh, why am I so sanguine about Congress when it is controlled by similar political constraints as the executive branch? And would I be just as, would I be happier if Congress passed the same rule? Okay, so the answer is I'd be happier with it with respect to the structure of the Constitution because it is the Congress that ought to be making determinations of lawmaking type. The executive shouldn't be making up new uh, departures based on a vague mandate of military necessity. I would be equally unhappy to the extent it violates individual rights. That is, there's, it cures the structural problem. It doesn't necessarily cure the individual rights problem. But I admit that the individual rights problem is subject to this spectrum. The Constitution is not a, a mechanical thing. It's a, a, a vague, itself it's a vague document that covers a lot of circumstances. So there may or may not be an individual rights problem depending on how they write it. Now, Congress has been supine. There's no branch that has covered itself in glory. You know, the courts, too. I mean, I gave you Korematsu, for example, and I gave you the, the World War I cases. Uh, the famous political insulation of the courts has not led it to always be a brave hero in wartime that stands up for the rights of people. I think it's more the brave men and women of the district courts and the lower federal courts who do a lot of the, the hard work in difficult times. So the answer is I, I think it would go a long way to, if the outcome came out that way, to curing the structural problem, it might still have rights problem. But my hunch is, my empirical hunch, is that if you put some of the stuff that's come out of the Justice Department to popular test, it would be too unpopular. It would go down like TIPS or TIA. There would be some public outcry about it, at least until the next dirty bomb, right? I mean, I do think that the all bets are off. The reason I'm giving this speech now is that we've had three years where the other shoe hasn't dropped. And we're, I don't think we're very well prepared for what happens when we again have a popular panic and a tendency to legislation like the USA Patriot Act. Congress didn't cover itself with glory in that one, passed it with hardly any debate, very little time. And uh, so I'm, I guess I'm kind of old-fashioned. I'm putting a lot of weight on the courts here, the counter-majoritarian exercise of the politically insulated branch, the weakest branch, the least dangerous branch, that's a little unpopular academically. It's very popular academically to talk about popular constitutionalism and the importance of the interpretation of the Constitution by the people. I think the 
court has not covered, sorry, the Congress has not covered itself in glory with the USA Patriot Act, nor has it enforced the kind of quasi-constitutional provisions like the War Powers Act that were supposed to give it more backbone. So I'm probably resting a lot on the courts. My hunch is that Congress would not pass all the same things the Justice Department drafts once it's subject to public scrutiny. It's the public scrutiny aspect that may have a politically constraining effect, but I admit that I might be overly optimistic. Sir? You want to speak into the microphone? Okay. My name's Henry Oakley. I practice law in New York, but I live here in Princeton and Lucky came you. back down by train just to, to hear you tonight. Thank you. Uh, I have read recently that you're going to argue a new case, or you're going to argue another case before the Supreme Court, and I was wondering, was this a 9-11 related type case, or was this some other constitutional issue that you're going to argue, or have you just argued? I, I argued a case about something that couldn't be farther from 9-11, uh, the sh interstate shipment of wine to consumers. Uh -huh. <laughs> Although, actually, it, it's been proven that alcohol consumption went way up in New York after 9-11, so there might be a remote connection. Uh, the, uh, in case anybody's interested, the issue in that case was whether a state may discriminate in favor of its own wine producers in their ability to ship directly to consumers as opposed to having to be shipped through a wholesaler. We have a unique world for liquor, unlike any other commodity, where the states have regulations and lots of restrictions on trade. So the issue was, was there a discrimination in violation of the National Economic Union that is not permitted to the states under the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition and gave the states apparent authority over wine importation. That's now been argued on December 7th, uh, Pearl Harbor Day. Another, it was a Commerce Clause case, exactly. Um, what, just to try to connect that back to the lecture, it's striking how few post-9-11 cases have come to the court. The court decides 70 merits cases a year, which is a, some people think that's not enough, that they're, they're maximizing their leisure and should take more cases, but they take 70 cases a year, and it's striking how few cases coming out of 9-11 developments have been litigated up to the Supreme Court. The secret deportation hearings didn't get there. Lots of other challenges. Hamdi, Rasul, and Padilla, two, three cases involving enemy combatants, two of which were decided. I didn't discuss the other one, Rasul, which was about Guantanamo because it was too technical to tell you what that one was. What's striking is how little we've ventilated this in, in, in the courts, and uh, that's the concern about invisibility that I have. So I wish I had more of these cases to tell you about. Thanks for asking. Yes, sir. Oh, that's, you're the man with the microphone. Is there anyone who'd like to use it? Professor Macedo. I, I, I agree, I think, with your, your outcomes and, and where you'd like the law to be, but I'm a little bit nervous about your setting this up in terms of law world versus discretion world. Mm. And law world seems to be the Constitution, and discretion world seems to be the executive outside the Constitution. I wonder if both of these perspectives are part of the Constitution. I mean, the, the president takes a unique oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. The president's given the executive power, not a list of specific powers. The Federalist Papers tell us that unity and secrecy are the primary qualities of the executive branch of government. All three branches are coordinate interpreters of the Constitution. What the Constitution means is not determined by the court. It's, it's determined by a, a complex political process in which the court plays a role. So I am wondering whether the question, the ultimate question here of uh, how we should think about constitutional restraints in times of emergency is properly thought of as something that's automatically determined by the court or automatically determined by Congress, or whether we want to sort of view the constitutional perspective as one in which the qualities of all three branches of government are relevant. And I, I would myself be reluctant to say that one perspective or another automatically uh, has, has authority with respect to determining that ultimate question, uh, but, but rather that it's a complicated political 
question ultimately, uh, but, you know, political in the sense of a matter of constitutional politics to determine, uh, you know, what the, what the proper outcome here is, but the, but the, but the perspective of the executive branch is, is relevant to determining, uh, you know, to determining and deciding that question, and that seems to me a perspective within the Constitution, uh, you know, not one that's outside the Constitution. Okay, so that's a beautiful question, and let me start by agreeing with you absolutely that the thesis, and maybe I can state it more succinctly again using your question to pivot off, I was trying to suggest that it's a mistake to think about the current dilemma as the Constitution on, the Constitution off, and to take solace in the fact that we don't have the Constitution off, so all must be well. I was trying to suggest that within the Constitution, there is an important kind of um, hydraulic balance between law world and discretion world as defined and provided for by the Constitution through our interpretation. We've interpreted the Constitution itself to allocate some uh, things to a greater level of discretion. The way we treat aliens is different from how we treat citizens. The way we treat administrative searches or drunk driving or border patrols is different from how we treat searches of your home. The way we treat military is different from civilian. The way we treat spies is different from from the way we treat criminals, and so forth and so on. We've tolerated a kind of division of the constitutional universe into, along a spectrum, into the world of law and discretion. But it's a mistake not to worry just because we're within the constitutional world and that we should be concerned about the relative allocation of power along that spectrum to law or discretion. And I am suggesting that the courts have been, uh, although not in an unbroken historical tradition, there's lots of embarrassment and shame, they're institutionally situated to be better at sticking to the, the law and then the discretion and or constraining the discretion and just given all the usual incentives. Executives want to keep the people safe and they want to put people away and they don't want to err in the wrong direction. So you've gotten the thesis exactly right. Now the second question is, your institutional question, you're saying, well, if we say that the Constitution contains these two worlds and you're worried that we're pushing too much over to discretion, or put another way, the world of discretion is expanding at the expense of the legal world and that I'm worried about that shift. You're saying, well, why do you think the courts are so good at policing it? This should be a complicated political judgment, a political judgment about how that should be split. Should it be 70-30, 55-45? Should it be, what, what's, what, what should the split be? There I think that... Um, you know, it, 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 it's, I, it's only judges who can resist at the moments of greatest distress the immense political pressure uh, to, to do otherwise. They haven't exemplified this all the time, but I, 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 don't, I don't know a better, a, a better way to figure it out. Not just, not, not in some uh, imperialist way, obviously in, in dialogue with the other branches, dialogue through the litigating procedure. I mean, what was astonishing about O'Connor's opinion is that she took into account all the executive's claims, and even though she gave a, she had a kind of tepid and deferential version of due process, she actually said the executive is, is making an extravagant position, right? The executive, we would have listened to the executive if they hadn't litigated this so extremely. That's a form of dialogue, but I, I'm mistrustful of the political process to get it right without the courts forcing the dialogue. So maybe I'm arguing for a more dialogue and forcing role for the courts as opposed to just an imperial, imperial trumping one. But thank you for clarifying the thesis of what I was really trying to say. Last question. Last question. I'm sorry, we, can we take two if we're very quick? Can you ask half your question and then you ask the second half of yours? <laughs> My name's Jeff Podell. Um, you, you, this is sort, of, sort of plays off of what you were just talking about. Um, but you talk about uh, the, the view that you seem to come from is, is more judicial supremacy. And 
part of there there are parts of the constitution that talk you know um very very explicitly about congress um having the power to limit the the appellate jurisdiction of the courts in yeah. fact that is now being tested uh in the congress right now and there there is uh a, a lot of fear that the Cong- that the uh that the courts have in recent years overstepped their bounds sure. um and this is just again within the constitutional World, this is not extra constitutional, but it's just the give and take of cons- of of which branch is sure. more supreme over a- at different points in time in our history. Sure. Okay, so I agree. Uh, the, if the court goes too far in defying the political branches, the political branches have a lot of sanctions that can be used to influence them and to take away their power. So obviously it's a delicate balancing act. If you want to stop the executive from doing something, you can't go so far that, that the executive figures out ways to punish you. And that could be the reason why an opinion like Hamdi is as deferential as it is and leaves due process to be worked out by district court judges. I agree with you. But I, uh, I don't think I'm advocating judicial supremacy. I think what I was trying to do in the answer to Professor Macedo's question is suggest that, that the courts can push the other branches to up, undertake more responsibility to their allocated roles, and that in, if Congress is shirking, the courts can do more than it did in Hamdi to try to force them not to shirk. Okay? And maybe we'll get one last quick question. I'm Dirk Hartog. Um, I guess the, the, this is a different kind of question. What's the actual significance of the traditions or the archetypes? That, and, and what I was thinking is a kind of strong version of your argument is that much, probably stronger than you'd want to make it, is that much of what's of the wrongs you describe are actually produced by the con- idea of a continuous constitution. That the con- idea of a continuous constitution, in fact, allows for the denial of transparency. That, I mean, if you had a discontinuous or an emergency constitutional tradition, then you would force the kind of um, transparency which would force rebellion, as happened in India when Indira Gandhi instituted martial law. I mean, you'd have a whole set of resistance in this context. And you get, so that your, your version comes actually closer to stuff that Stan Katz has written about at other times, which is, in a sense, to, to make some versions of the consti- continuous constitution a kind of uh, recipe for a, a certain kind of authoritarianism. Okay, this again is a wonderful question, and I accept that as the, the greatest critique. And you're really speaking from Jackson's perspective here. This is to say that if, if, if the continuous constitution in practice is watered down in a way that makes us complacent, then our opportunity to stop the government, to, to have a, a kind of right of popular rebellion, is really impeded. Far better to have the government say, guess what, folks, we're suspending the constitution. Yesterday you had the following rights, and today you don't. And that would get our attention, right? And it wouldn't take these, you know, obscure decisions and fractured opinions and 5-4 and 8-1 and all this stuff that obscures the popular debate and actually keeps it out of popular will. You know, that's the strongest argument here, that this not only uh, dilutes the meaning of the Constitution in other times, Jackson's concern, but it may actually lead to greater offenses that are unpoliced through the political process. Fair point. Uh, fair point. And, and certainly uh, there, there are examples of of that kind of outcry. I mean, look, the, the, the verdict on how the British counterterrorism policy worked against the Irish troubles in the 70s 
uh, is, according to the Secretary, Margaret Thatcher, Secretary of State, who presided over a policy of, cons- of, of, of long-term internment without tra- charges, without stated charges or, or access to trial, of Irish civilians, both in Northern Ireland but also within Great Britain, the verdict on it was it didn't work. Why? I, mean, I, I heard uh, Lord, now Lord Howe, who'd been the architect of a lot of that policy, say in a public setting that it didn't work. Why? Because the rebellion against these practices of mass incarceration of Irish civilians in the hope of, of smoking out IRA terrorists had led to rebellion on the part, not literal rebellion, but to resistance on the part of other Irish civilians who weren't cooperating and actually turning in the actual terrorists. And he said it didn't work as a matter of utility. So there's two aspects to it. You get popular rebellion perhaps against the violation of of rights that we think of as our birthright. And you also get a more, perhaps more of a political judgment on whether the sacrifice of rights is worth the gain to, to freedom of, from terror, and if that utility calculus isn't working, then people may say, well, why are you rounding up all these people when it's just counterproductive? You're, you're, you're drying up the source of witnesses against real terrorists because you're making them think that it's a national origin pro- persecution or a vendetta. Both those things are possibilities. I guess what I think would happen if the courts were bolder, right, if they were bolder in saying, Joint authorization for the use of military force, that has nothing to do with enemy combatants being locked in cages in Guantanamo. I don't, you know, it, or, or bolder to say, give the guy a lawyer, not some kind of process. If the courts were more explicit in the way that they wrote these things, that that might allow the transparency that you describe. So, but it's back to the prior question. If they are too transparent, they might lose their jobs and, you know, then we'd be stuck and I'd, we'd be back trying to think it up from scratch. But with time having gone, I think I should say thank you very much for having me here. It's been a pleasure. I'll conclude only by saying that it won't surprise you that Kathleen has won prizes for being the best teacher at both the Harvard Law School and the Stanford Law School. Thank you very much.